Good morning. Morning. Wow, we're quiet today. Good morning. morning. Wonderful. What a joy it is. Um, My name is Jeeves. I'm married to Catherine. Uh, We have the privilege of overseeing the youth work uh, for the church. So if you're new here, welcome. It's a real joy for you to join us today. Um, Today, we are continuing our journey in Luke. Now, I'm going to take a little bit of time to set the context because, to be honest with you, we're heading into some bits of Luke that are going to become increasingly more difficult to hear, to to be very loving to you as a church. We're coming to the moment where our glorious saviour is about to be murdered on a cross. And though we read the words normally, and we have the story at Christmas of the birth, and we have the story at Easter of the crucifixion, and even though it can slightly feel numb to us by hearing it annually, year in, year out, the crucifixion, The words that Luke paints are sobering and they're difficult to hear and they're intended to be that. And I really hope by saying this context lovingly and caringly, I'm I'm really saying as we go through these next few weeks, as we head to the cross, let us not put our own preconceptions and assumptions and our own numbness of reading the passage onto that. Let us read the words for what they are. That our glorious Saviour is about to be crucified, murdered on a cross, bloody and beaten. Let us not forget what he's done for us. And Luke writes these words so well. He, he writes them, there's two ways you can write it, right, and, and digest the words. You can write it synthetically, where you're taking big picture stuff and putting them together. That's Mark's Gospel. We can write it really analytically and dive into the little details of stuff. That's what Matthew tries to do. John just storytells, as John does. Luke combines it together that we've seen, right? So at the beginning, really analytically at Jesus' birth, goes through that. Then we have a long time talking about the journey in Jerusalem, skips over some bits. And now we're going to really find Luke analytically digesting what we're going to see at the end. The trials that Jesus goes through, the crucifixion, and praise God we live in the New Testament world, the resurrection. So we need to be aware that Luke, skipping over big bits of time that we have seen during this, is not to avoid detail, but it's to focus our eyes on detail that we really need to see. And so we're going to be looking at a passage of, about Peter and the, and the whole aspect of him denying Jesus. Again, a really common story. Probably the kids will know it. But because of that, let us not skip over the detail. I really want to set that context well over this today for the next few weeks as we dive into Luke a little bit more. Is that all right? Yes, happy? Great. Good, good, good. So you might remember as well when, when we've spoken about Luke before, we talked about a boxing match. Do you remember this? Ages ago, we were meeting at Oak Hall. Those were the days, meet at Oak Hall. These are better days of meeting in the building, to be fair. But do you remember we were talking about boxing match? Jesus versus the Pharisees. And they were trying to sucker punch him in. Well, we see the final round come into fruition here. We see the Pharisees trying to throw faint punches. Faint basically means a deceptive move. We're going to see more of that over this time. We're going to see probably a moment where the Pharisees thought they got hold of Jesus, but it's a boxing match that is going on, that Jesus is playing in perfection. The reason why is because in boxing, it's not just big thugs throwing hands. 
But it's about seeing the other person's move. It's about planning. It's a bit of chess, really, in a mindset about how you box. And we're going to see Jesus' mindset play out in great perfection here. What I love about these passages is even in this, when we look at Jesus' character, how he responds, it's not just commenting on Jesus' behaviour, but it's still application that we can take away from it for ourselves. I'm grateful for a saviour that always looks for a way that we can continue, continue to learn different things about him. And so there's two big bits of what I'm preaching today. Number one is the trials, and number two is Peter. So we're going to read through the passages, and actually I'm going to deal with them, not in order that Luke writes them. I'm going to deal with the trials first, and then we're going to look at Peter afterwards as well. Great. Let us read today. So, we are going from Luke 22, verse 54 to 71. I realised, didn't put it on the front. Oh, apologies everyone. So, Luke 22, verse 54 to 71. Let me read. Then they seized him and led him away. This is from by Jesus, while after going to get somebody, okay? They seized him and led him away, bring him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. When they had kindled the fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You, are, uh, you also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. Then after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly, this man also was with him, for he too is a good... Oh, gosh. Galilean, thank you. I was going to say Galilean, that's not it. Galilean. <laughs> but Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster croaked. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy! Who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When the day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chiefs, priests, and scribes. And they led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from our own lips. Heavenly Father, I just pray that as we look at these words, you would just be in this moment. Just come and unpack this world for us today, we pray. In your holy name, amen. Amen. Okay, as I said, I'm going to deal with the second bit of these passages first. So we come across some trials that Jesus goes through. Uh, in fact, what we're going to go through over the next few weeks, before we get to the crucifixion, is about six trials. Now, two of them, or three of them, we've kind of covered today. One of them is inferred, but this is what the order is. Got inquired for Ananias, who was the previous chief high priest. Got an evening meeting where Cephas was presiding it. Again, this is what we've got the, chief, the current chief priest. 
in the morning confirmation. Then what we're going to come to is an initial meeting with Pilate, meeting with Trump in front of Herod, and then the final meeting in front of Pilate and the people, the classic Barabbas-type moment. So this is where we're going. Today, in this bit, we're really covering the first three. The first one, as I said, is inferred in Luke, and we can notice that when it says that Jesus looked at Peter as he was moving through. It's an inferred notation there that he was moving from Ananias, the first trial, and going to Cephas. That's what that is inferring there. So we have this moment where it's written by detailing out what Jesus is going through. Now, a question that I asked when I was going through this is like, why is, why is Luke writing in such a way where it seems not one-sided, but it seems really offensive, really direct of how the Pharisees are treating Jesus. It is calling out more about their actions rather than only their words. Well, if you remember how Luke and why Luke is writing this, he's writing this for the judge, um, Theolophysus, can't say the word, um, about the fact that Paul at that time was wrongly charged. And Paul was being charged for being a follower of Christ. So in a sense, what Luke was trying to do was saying how Jesus in this bit was a victim. How he was wrongly charged at this time. How they were wrongly treating him at this time. That if Jesus was innocent, therefore what Paul was being charged for, he was innocent too. So we really see these words come out in a relatively offensive, difficult way by seeing the characters of how the Pharisees are acting to really call out how unjust they would be. Now let's paint a picture and, and kind of include what the other Gospels say this as well, right? So the first trial in front of Ananias, going to the second one. The second one in the evening, what it would have been is it would have been with all the kind of leaders at that time. So it would have been around about 71 uh, men in the Sanhedrin. Now, 71 men alone is already a toxic environment, so already it's not looking good. So it's going to be that environment where in the evening beforehand, they're all basically pinpointing Jesus in the middle, and they're all just staring and looking at him and challenging him. This is what it looks like at the beginning. Then we've got next where they then go to um, have it during the day, have it in the morning. Basically the same thing. The, the, the look of the evening meeting to the morning meeting, more or less, it looks exactly the same. Now, here's the question. Are, this, are they actually acting wrongly here? Like, against maybe the Roman law or the Jewish law, if I'm calling out their behaviour is something to be questioned, are they actually acting out wrongly here? Well, if we compare their actions to the Sanhedrin law, let's just look at a few points Hilarity. Let's look at a few points of why they were wrong. First one, the first trial happened at night. The law said that no trial is meant to happen at night, so you wouldn't have a shady court type environment. The proceedings did not play, take place at the temple. It took place in someone's house. Jesus allowed no defence. Um, false witnesses are brought in to accuse Jesus. We read that in Matthew and Mark, that there's false witnesses that come in and just start accusing Jesus of random things. We said, but there was no clear evidence given. Jesus does not blaspheme. They claim he's a blasphemer. Funny part is, he is the son of God. So he doesn't blaspheme. The verdict comes on the same day as the trial. 
It's written in Sanhedrin law that you were meant to give at least two days between the trial and the judgment to make sure there's no instinct or emotional reaction about why that should happen. Jesus being tried on the feast day. It's prohibited. And the high priest is not supposed to issue the pronouncement of guilt. What you've got there is the high priest says this man's guilty. Not meant to. Now there's a handful. Now let's answer the question. Have they acted wrongly? Yes! The answer is yes. Ding, 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 winner. Like, it's, it's very clear that they acted wrongly. So what they were not going for was they were not going for justice. Let's make this very clear. If you're thinking that these courts was being run, these trials being run, for justice to be carried out, then we've got the wrong idea. It wasn't about justice being seen. They were wanting to settle old schools. Remember the story before we've just gone through. Jesus continuously drawing people in and sharing there is a way to fulfillment of life that the law currently that is being upheld and how these religious leaders, these religious leaders, how they're enforcing them is wrong. And I am here to bring life, life to the full. I'm here to bring the way. I'm here to bring freedom. Jesus saying this and continuously along his journey, these Pharisees continuously get stuck. The boxing match has been one-sided as these Pharisees have continued to take blow after blow as Jesus has continued to show their disobedience against the law. So if you put themselves in their shoes, if you put yourself in their shoes, there's an element where we all recognise that this is wrong. This was their moment to grab Jesus in the middle of the night in a location with soldiers that Jesus was not weaponed or anything like that to grab him and chuck him in the middle of the room to be judged in their own way. Forget the law. Let's have it. Let's get it. Type thing. This, this is the reality of what they're trying to do. They taunted and teased Jesus. They beat him. So forget what we're about to come on to, right? Forget about the, the, the whip on nine tails and all the stuff that we're going to get onto, the whole crucifixion. Even at the very beginning, the moment they were able to grab hold of Jesus, Jesus just healing the servant's ear, just a pure sign of actually I'm bringing peace, I'm doing this in peace. Right after that, the moment that they get in the evening before their first trial, they beat him. They spit at him. They mock him. Now, what a moment where they try to cheat Jesus' um, gifting as a magic trick. Go on, prophesy, go on, do, do another trick out of the box. Just imagine that side. Jesus is, is in this middle with his men around them, blindfold, and they're whipping, you know, they're beating him. And they're asking him, I would mock who hit you then. It's like kind of school playground bullying type mentality where they're just trying to fully get into Jesus' mind. Fully just trying to attack him in his way. They acted wrongly. There's no justice here. This is what he's doing. But even in that moment, so even in that moment, Jesus doesn't. Kick off, doing. He doesn't kick off. Fully God, fully man, fully God. 
It wouldn't be hard for them to call like an angel down and be like, let's get it. <laughs> like, let's have it. Like, let's go for it. It would have been easy for that to happen. It would have been easy for Jesus to have overcome them. 71 men? You think that's going to be a lot for Jesus? Nah, that's nothing for him. But he doesn't. What does he do? He boxes. He plays. He's clear. He's holding firm to what his saviour has called him to do. His father has called him to do. That cup that might have been too full for him to handle, he's holding it and saying, no, I'm going to be obedient in this. And he boxes, oh, so well. They try and have faint punches. You remember what I said about throwing a deceptive move to try and get Jesus in a way. They ask him if he's the Messiah. Essentially what they're trying to do is they're trying to trick Jesus. That is my thing around here. Sorry, everyone. Um, I'm going to hold it there. Is that okay? If it goes again, keep ripping the mic here. Thank you. Um, they ask him if he's the Messiah in a way to try and trick him for evidence. So if he was to say, yes, I am the Messiah, they would have gone, great, he said he's the Messiah, kill him. Like, in, in a sense, that's what they were trying to do by asking these questions. Jesus sees that move, and what does he respond with? He doesn't say, yeah, I am. He says, my answer means nothing to you. My, my answer essentially is nothing to do. If you say that I am, then you get what you want. But if I say that I'm not, what does that mean to you? You're going to kill me anyway. Is it essentially what he's saying in his words? My answer means nothing to you. I understand what you're trying to do, and actually I'm not playing your game. My answer means nothing to you regardless. He doesn't react with anger, he doesn't react with abuse, he reacts with steadfast truth in his way. In fact, what's interesting is he goes further than saying that he's just the Messiah. He talks about that the Son of Man has been seated. He, he uses what is um, he said back in Luke 20 by talking about the Son of Man coming. And this look, looks back at Daniel 7, where Daniel prophesies that the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God, i.e., from this day, the Son of Man is now to judge. Previously, he has prophesied that this was coming. This moment was to come. The Son of Man will suddenly judge. And this moment, where Jesus is in front of all these people being him, he says, the Son of Man is here to judge. This moment now, the Son of Man is in power. Oh, that's Jesus' reaction. That the Son of Man is there. The council might be sitting around to judge Jesus, but Jesus is saying, I am here judging the council. I am here to judge the council. With, they then said, are you the Son of Man? Are you the Son of God? And Jesus says, you say that I am. You say that I am. I find that so interesting, that they are trying to catch him for blaspheming, but actually they're the ones doing it. There's some irony in it, where, where they're, they're trying to get him to say that you're son of man, and Jesus responds says, you say I am, catching them for the only thing that they are claiming that Jesus is doing. But yet, there definitely comes uproar, but with hidden delight, as they feel that they've got it. 
They feel they've got Jesus on their terms and they're ready to put him in front of Pilate and ready to get him geared up, geared up with the crowd for death. It's really challenging. The Sanhedrin feels like they've got the jump on Jesus, but actually Jesus has abundantly held his ground knowing what is to come. Knowing that he is victorious, he will rule and reign. Do you know why? Because what is said in Isaiah, Isaiah 50 and 52, what they're just doing has been prophesied that the Messiah will go through. <laughs> it's been prophesied that the Messiah will go through this. In Isaiah 50 and 52, can Isaiah 50 to 53, please read it in your own time. It's some helpful context for us when we look at the end of Luke. Because it prophesizes that the Messiah will go through this. They think they've got the jump on Jesus, whereas Jesus is actually going through a moment that is fulfilling the promise and the, pro- uh, the prophecy that he is the Messiah. Spurgeon says these fantastic words. He says, I must also call him victorious. His persecutors cannot make him give way to anger. They cannot destroy his mercy. They cannot slay his love. They cannot cause him to think of himself. They cannot make him declare that he would go no further with his works of saving sinners now that men began to scoff at him and smite him and despitefully use him. Even in these moments, Jesus is modelling how we should respond to persecution. Even in these moments, Jesus is modelling something so, so majestic about his power and his love and his mercy. Being victorious in this as well. He's demonstrating the proper reply to hate. Not hating more, but to love. He's demonstrating that his trust in God the Father was great. That God would vindicate him. And that he need not defend himself in that way. He's demonstrating how uh, holding um, onto the God-given identity and truth is way more important than what anyone else is calling you to do. He's showing the importance that those who are abused and humiliated for their faith, the importance that we have a saviour that just doesn't sympathise with it, but empathises with it, that's gone through it. It's a really important thing for us to remember in these moments that though our majestic king goes through a death and a separation from the Father more gruesome than we can imagine for us, we can also look to him as a source of truth and encouragement of when we go through things on earth. Jesus is not only our saviour that we can look to and look onto, Jesus is our saviour that we can live like. Because he went through it. And it's really important we look at Jesus in this moment, in the trials, in the courtroom, and ask ourselves, how do we judge Jesus? It's very easy to put ourselves in the shoes of the nice people in the story, right? I think this is a moment for us to put ourselves in the shoes of the Pharisees. We all, when it comes to faith, took a moment where we saw and heard who Jesus was. We had to sit in that council and say, what do we believe? Do we believe that he was the Messiah? Do we believe that he was just a man? Or do we believe that he was a madman? That type mentality, right? 
We had to sit in that council. If you gave your life to Jesus, you were in that moment on the council where you had to make a decision. If you haven't given your life to Jesus, I'm sharing with you my Saviour. I'm sharing with you with our Messiah. And there is a moment where we have to sit on the council and ask the question, what do we believe? Because there will come a a time where we will finish our time on earth and we will sit in the council, in the courts of heaven, and the Son of Man is no longer being judged, but the Son of Man is judging. So we need to make the decision very clearly and importantly to ask ourselves, what do we actually believe of him? So my loving question is, is what do we believe of him? Is he your Messiah? Was he a medicine that you just go to whenever you need it? Is he just a man that has nice values? What do you believe of him? Because that decision is vital today. Okay. Wow. Right. Paired with this, we get a sobering moment of one of the disciples. And I really, yeah, I really struggle to read this, actually. I really struggle to read Peter's account. I don't know why. Maybe it's because I just saw a bit of realism in it. But we get paired with this account with Peter. As we we see from the question of what do we think of Jesus, in those moments where we are questioned, in the moments where we are trialled, we get given and paired an applicational point with one of his disciples. And they're not just one of his disciples, the one who was separated out as the lead disciple, the first among equals, Peter. Now walk with me his journey so far. His journey has been, Jesus called him out of the boat, right? Miracles, fish are plenty. Then walking with Jesus for the three years of his ministry, Peter was the one who stepped out of the boat and walked on water. Don't forget that. There had been a separation of Peter when it came to with Jesus. Jesus even said to Peter, I'm calling you the rock. No longer just Simon, Simon Peter, the rock that I'm going to build my church upon. Then, then you get the moment of the Last Supper where Jesus said, I'm going to die. And, and Peter twice gets mistaken about this. First time where Jesus washing the feet and Peter's like, wash all of me or don't wash me. That kind of mentality that was going on. And then Jesus directly looks at Peter and says, on behalf of the disciples, I'm saying this to you, that I'm praying for you. And Peter, obviously, doesn't really understand it, doesn't see it. And Jesus then obviously prophesies this moment that we're coming on to. So I want to be very clear, look at Peter's journey. I think one of the things that we can easily do is kind of just do the kind of, oh, look at Peter, like type mentality, you know what I mean? Like classic Peter, always doing this kind of thing. He was with Jesus. The relationship with Jesus was strong. In fact, what we know is that other disciples had gone. Peter was trying to walk for a distance to just look after Jesus. This Messiah that he had in the head, the freer that was going to come, he was just watching him to see what is going on. And he heads to the temple while they were striking up a fire, sitting down together. At a campfire, watching, waiting. Peter's probably just in that moment just going, okay. Jesus isn't there. 
Nothing's happened. I've had nothing. Let's just wait. Let's just see what happens here. He's already rebuked me for cutting some guy's ear off. So I'm just, let me just wait and see. And as he's there, the bonfire, the fire front, and the light flickers with the wind. And it flickers into his face. His face lights up. And at that moment, we hear that a, a young girl, a servant girl, says, Were you one of God's women? Now, in that moment, put yourself in the shoes. Let's not just assume that it was easy for Peter, right? Like, it, put yourself in the shoes. What would you have done in that moment? See, Peter's in his mind, what we, what we can take out is just fear. This Messiah, this, this ruler, this saviour that was going to come and free them, liberate them from the Romans. A little girl's asking me if that Messiah who is in front of the temple courts, who in his head is knowing things are not going to end well with him, ask himself if I'm with him. So if I say I'm with him, I'm going to be judged like him. And if I'm going to be judged like him, I might die next to him. And if I might die next to him, I ain't going to end well. So when a small girl asks him, are you with him? Peter's response is, nah, <laughs> that's not me. Nah, bro, that's not me. That's, you got the wrong person. It says, but after that, you, you have another person says to him, you definitely followed him. You're one of his disciples. And Peter's again like, look, man, I, I don't know what you're talking about here. you got that one guy, like, you see my nose? My nose is a bit different. Like, that's not, that's not really what I look like. It's like, it's a little bit different. You've charged the wrong person. It says, after an hour, probably from Peter discussing to, um, <laughs> to, to catch the, the, the area that he was from, it was probably from the gruffle of his voice, it was probably from the accent, probably how he was. Then they call him saying, wait a second, you think you, you are Galilean. <laughs> Galilean. You, you, you are that. that. That is you. you. You are this person. In the other Gospels it says at that moment that Peter not only denies it, but he swears and curses. He's, he's using Profanity and language, using flavoured language in a way to separate him further away from Jesus. It's not just a denial. Do you get what I'm saying? It's not just a no. It's a, all of me was definitely not like Jesus. I'm using language here that Jesus definitely wouldn't use because I'm definitely not like him. He has so much fear in him that he's going to the right of the extreme to basically model and show he is not meant to be like him. He's not with Jesus. He's not like Jesus. He doesn't even know Jesus because the flavour of our language is there. We read that in Matthew and Mark that, that he uses this to basically separate himself as far as he can from Jesus. At that moment, the moment where Peter is acting in a way that he knows will separate himself completely from this saviour that he has walked with for last three years, the rooster cross, and Jesus walks from one place to another, and he looks at Peter, 
Now, a look is not a casual, just like, right, like it's an intentional look. And Peter, it all drops. Shame and guilt, everything just clicks that one. The, the saviour that literally took him from being on a boat for the rest of his life and showed him the glories of God, showed him miracles, commissioned him to do that as well, called him as the rock, where the rock has fallen and crumbled, and this man has suddenly no longer stayed with Jesus. The claim he said he would do, but what Jesus had prophesied had come into fruition, not just by denying Jesus, but by making every action that he possibly could to say, I don't even know this man. There are commentaries that talk about the, the discussion of Judas Barabbas and, and Peter. And they say Judas was obviously pretty bad how they sold out Jesus, being maybe a false follower. Barabbas was completely opposite of Jesus. Jesus Christ versus Judas Barabbas, completely opposite. But there, there's a claim that commenters write that Peter probably made the worst denial out of all three of them. But the fact was someone who was so in love with Jesus, but when it came to that moment to say, I'm a follower of Christ, I belong to him, he would go so far to complete the night. I take solace in this story. Because I know there's been moments in my life where it might not have been as grand as Peter. But I've done the exact same thing. When fear and anger and all this stuff like persecution comes in front of me, it's moments where I just back out. It's easier sometimes. We, as staff, we're reading uh, this book in Judges, and a really helpful bit that we came across a statement from Tim Keller is convenience trumps obedience. And nothing's more true here where it's more convenient to not put yourself in the firing line. It's better to do that than be a beat against Christ. As I think about my times at university, friends going out, it's more beating, not getting drunk, and not doing stuff, but convenience means I follow suit. I remember even recently, like, during the whole fuel crisis, there was a man who couldn't pay for fuel at at the shell grounds. Now, this is not virtual signaling at all, but like, as he was struggling and, and panicking, not knowing what to do, I was like, oh, let me just help. Let me pay for your fuel. Thank you. Oh, you're so good. Thank you so much. Gary and some people there. Why are you doing this? Now, I had a moment. By the way, the shell garage is literally right next to the church. So I was working in the church. I had a moment where I could have just gone, because I want God to know that he loves you. I'm part of the church and we just want to show you love. Like people around me in that moment are bottling and just said, I just want to help you with your day. Such a moment just to share God's love in such a simple way, such an easy moment to sow the seed of Christ. But instead of having that confidence to say, because I want God to love you, such a simple thing, instead, fearful Jeeves steps out of the way and doesn't have the opportunity to say. 
what I'm calling out here is just, I think what we shouldn't do with Peter's story is we shouldn't just kind of go, this is Peter's story and it's so far what he's done, let's ignore that for ourselves. Lovingly, I think we regularly go through moments like Peter's gone through this. I, I, I just think, maybe you're holier than me, but I just think that we go through moments like this where we forget the relationship that God has for us and we break under fear, we break under pressure, we break in those moments, instead of saying, I'm for Christ, it's saying, I have nothing to do with Christ. Like, when we talk about Alpha, right, for the church, and say, let's invite people to Alpha, lovingly, how many people actually invite people to Alpha? Like, like let's be, be really honest without it, when, when Ian lovingly talks about Alpha with passion and with a boast and saying, let's invite people to it, and we're like, yeah, let's do it, church, the next day when you're with your colleagues, or the next day when you're with people, have you actually invited people to Alpha, or is that just a mantra that we say as a church? But when it comes to family service or Christmas service, and we're like, let's invite people to it, how much of that are you actually inviting people to, or is it just kind of a nice thing that we all get caught up in energy and the passion to say, let's do it, guys? Or, or when at work, and, and all your friends or, or your work friends are gossiping, or they're swearing, or, or they're, at, they're speaking badly about people. What do you do in that moment? Do you sit there and stay? Or do you get up and go? By the way, not contributing, but just sitting there and staying, is probably just the same thing at that times. Because it's not changing the culture like Jesus did. Jesus didn't just kind of go, ah, it is what it is, do you know what I mean? He, he Counter-cultural lived. He lived in a way that upheld the kingdom of God. So what I'm calling out here is not for us just to look at Peter's story at the extent that it is, but to take the moment that Peter went through and to say, when we go through moments like that, what do we do? Dave, you want to come? Oh, is that right? Thanks. Now, if I left us in this place, we will all leave here feeling full of shame and full of guilt. And that is not the God that I believe in. That's not the gospel. The reason why we can take solace in this is not because we read a story like Peter, but we see the reconciliation and redemption of Peter coming later. Jesus didn't, this moment didn't happen to Peter, and Peter wept and was just there, and that was it. But Peter had a moment to say, no, I will come back to my Christ. And we read later in Acts how Peter preached, filled with the Spirit, preached the Gospel. In fact, we read that Peter died for Christ. What he said he would do came to fruition. We have moments where Peter was able to come back and be reconciled with Christ forever. Guess what? When we go through our Peter moments, that's not it. We don't just give up and fail and then suddenly that's it. It's in that moment of failure and maybe we weep, maybe we struggle and maybe it takes a bit of time. But guess what? Our saviour is not far away tutting like an approving parent to say, why did you do that? No, he's standing there with open arms saying, come back home. Come back. Let's learn this. Let's move on. Failure 
is not saying I failed in that moment. Failure is not going back to Christ after that moment. Do you understand me? The reason why I struggle to um, read this is because I've recognised too many moments in my life that I had Peter moments. I think I recognise just moments where I spoke over myself, geez, you're just a failure when it comes to this, aren't you? And though I don't want to portray any victim spirit or anything like that, because I don't believe that's true, I do think at times that we accidentally let our failures dictate our identity rather than let our failures drive us more to Christ. Judas let his failure drive him to death. Peter let his failure drive him to reconciliation with the great I am. So when we sin, when we fail, when we struggle, don't run away from Christ. Run towards Him. And I think it's really important in a moment that there's going to be a prayer ministry team that will be here to love and pray for any specifics. But I think there is a moment where we can just lovingly, as a congregation, run to Christ. So, as Dave is lovingly playing in the background, why don't we just shout our eyes together? Now, the reason why I say that is for us not to be distracted. So why don't we just shut our eyes together? And if there's anything that's popped out of this preach, I thought about the whole idea of being on a council to look at Jesus, or even the other side of going through those people, Peter-like moments. Now's a chance for us to run to him. Just feel that um, maybe a handful of us that this week we have had a significant Peter like moment with a temptation or a habit that we've been struggling with in particular, in particular using um, the internet um, to use the right words. I just want to say, if that's you, I'm so grateful that we have a God who breaks strongholds. We have a God that breaks habits. We have a God that reconciles and redeems. And it's just an action of repenting and saying, my God, I come back to you, I'm sorry. But he is not a God that is over your shoulder watching you and tutting away, but he is a Messiah, he is a Saviour, he is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and it's not afar, but it is close, with arms open up wide to say, come back home. So if that's you, I just want to 
I'd love to pray for you at the end as well, but if that's you, let me just pray over you. But let me pray for all of us as we finish. Heavenly Father, I thank you for that. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are just so merciful. You're just so gracious. That Jesus, you are not a distant Messiah, that, that you are a God who went through trials, went through difficulties, and, and, and went through gruesome, gruesome trials, and died on the cross so that we could be reconciled and brought back home. And I thank you for the stories like Peter where we read someone who was so close to walking with you, Jesus, even they struggled and fell. And your hand was still out. Your hand was still out to say, come back home. I pray, Jesus, that when we go through moments like these, we wouldn't let those moments drive our identity, drive our understanding of this relationship, but Father, we would drive ourselves back home. And those who are struggling in particular this week with things doing with the internet, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would reign and rule in those lives. That the convenience wouldn't no longer trump obedience. But we would be obedient to your word and obedient to your relationship, my glorious King. We just hand this all to you and say, Father, let your will be done, we pray. In your holy name. Amen. Amen. Great.